Today, I want to preach on all three readings from Job, from uh, James, and from the Gospel of Mark, which is perhaps the strictest prohibition against divorce uh, in the Gospels by Jesus. So no self-respecting preacher can just say, I'm not going to do it. Maybe from time to time, but we have to say something about what it means, and we want to keep in mind my teacher, O.C. Edwards, uh, who was my first New Testament professor, who said, remember, it is not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. So everybody needs to learn to be, to some degree, a student of the Bible so that they understand the context and what it is that we're talking about. So we're going to talk about Mark's gospel. But first, we're introduced today to the book of Job, which is the uh, second piece of the wisdom literature that we have been reading over the past couple of months. Proverbs we read for a while, and now we're going to read for two or three weeks in the book of Job. So I want to say something about this because in the wisdom literature, we have sort of two threads that run through it with regard to the kind of wisdom they're talking about, uh, which is multifaceted. But in Proverbs, the principal view of what a wise person begins to understand is that they are responsible for the circumstances they find themselves in. We, we all are responsible, uh, our circumstances in life of, of our own making. Proverbs is the oldest of the wisdom literature, or some of the oldest of the wisdom literature. And Job is problematic because it has been dated uh, in about an 800-year range, from maybe um, 1,000 B.C. to 200 B.C., so that means there were a number of people who compiled the book. Job is very elegantly written, and there are more Hebrew words in the book of Job that, uh, that don't appear anywhere else than in any other book. So, you know, people who do this for a living, you may think this is nuts. I have a book called Sabe Kulvo's uh, a Greek Interpretation of the New Testament where he lists every Greek word in the, in the New Testament and tells you how many times it occurs, right? So that means if you say, well, there's a word that has just, we've just read, I haven't seen this anywhere before. Well, it only occurs there. Or it occurs there and two times in, in another place. So in Job, we have more Hebrew words that occur only in Job which makes translation problematic and all kinds of different things, just so you know this. But the main theme is that here is a situation where a, a man of integrity, a righteous man, is inflicted by adversity through no fault of his own. You notice that in the Bible, by the way, it, there's an internal conversation that takes place uh, in the biblical narrative in terms of how people understand uh, things in, in a variety of ways. I saw a YouTube video the other day of uh, Dr. John Polkinghorne, who is an Episcopal priest, or an Anglican priest, who is a world-renowned physicist. He's an expert on micro, you know, in the universe, that sort of stuff. And he's a priest. And he said, you have to remember this. The Bible is not a book. 
It is a library of a lot of different books. Some of them are quite short, and, mo and, and maybe the longest ones in, in the English are 40 pages or 60 pages long. So we're not talking about, you know, a huge one-book thing that is all connected. Fundamentalist Christians would tell you that this is a self-interpreting document, that everything connects to everything else and has this. It, it, that's not true. So Job today is, in one sense, though, engaged in a conversation with Proverbs and the author of Proverbs. Are our circumstances of our own making? And do we believe in a God who would inflict suffering and adversity unjustified on some human being? So I don't have an answer to that. I think there's some Christians who would say, yes, God can do what he wants. He's sovereign. If it serves his purposes to inflict suffering on an innocent man, a man of integrity, then God can do that. If it serves God's purposes, which may be beyond our understanding or knowledge. And others may say, like me, I don't think it would be as, it's easy to believe in a God of caprice. You know what I mean? A capricious God? That doesn't seem right to me. Because the opening of Job today is about the Satan, not the devil, the advocate, who's walking to and fro on the earth and comes to God and says, this man's a righteous man, he's blameless. And, he said, I, and God says, I know that. And he said, I can get him to curse you if you let me do this. Let's just afflict a little adversity on him and we'll see what he does, you know. It's like W.H. Auden said about atheists, just give me a few about behaviorism. Just give me a few simple electric appliances and I'll have them reciting the Athanasian Creed in public. <laughs> right? So the lesson from this for me is to say when you read something like this, um, it's reasonable to say to yourself, I don't believe in a capricious God. I believe in a God that unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives me. And the biblical witness overwhelmingly affirms this. And in the beginning of the Old Testament, it says God made the world and everything in it, and you and me and all the dogs and cats, and called it good. So that's what we should be thinking about and the importance of that. In Hebrews today... We have, you know, there must be something wrong with me because in the last, I've noticed this in the last five or six years, I'm actually beginning to get the book, the epistle to the Hebrews, which before I found completely incomprehensible. But as you know, my favorite passage in the whole New Testament is there. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. So here's the inside baseball about this particular passage in the epistle to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were influenced by an ancient Jewish Platonic philosopher named Philo of Alexandria. Some of you may have heard of Philo of Alexandria. So he was a Jew who lived in the diaspora, 
He was a Hellenistic Jew who believed in Platonic philosophy. And why is this important? Because let's say I'm going to probably do, those of you who had more philosophy than I have, uh, Plato was interested in talking about forms, perfect forms that existed that exist in eternity. And that human beings are imperfect examples of the pure forms. And that we're not really capable of understanding these forms in a pure and absolute way. Wrote a wonderful have any of you read The Cave, the parable of the cave? So that you understand that you know you can sit, it's like in a movie theater, you're sitting in a cave and there's a, a backlight, a fire, and all you're seeing is the wall of the cave and the shadows that move. And so you're trying to make some sense out of what is good and true and beautiful in the midst of this sort of difficult uh, perception. So there were a number of people in this congregation who were moved to say, you know, I'd like to go back to thinking about the perfect forms and that you and I need to focus on the perfect forms, not the imperfect forms. And Christianity isn't the right way to do that. It's better to do it in the platonic sense. So when we talk about this, the, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is saying, we need to refocus ourselves on Jesus because he represents in his humanity the perfect form. And so rather than think about this in some highfalutin philosophical sense, you know, it's like when you were a kid, I've said this to you before, I'd be nine years old, I'd go to my grandmother's house and I'd tell her that I was having trouble in school and that the teacher was being mean to me. <laughs> and the thing, I mean, it was just no good, I couldn't do it. And my grandmother would say, dear, you must rise above it. Have you ever been told that? You must rise above it. That's like when I first became an Episcopalian and was talking to a priest about my spiritual condition. He said, you must present yourself as a living sacrifice. <laughs> what in the world? So, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says, we have an example of somebody who is going to show you and has showed you how to live into the perfect humanity to which you're called, made in the image and likeness of God. And that you can do this in Jesus because he represents the highest of the human potentiality that we know about. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about moral perfection. That is not what perfection means in total. It is not moral perfection. Some of us have become sick or crazy trying to pursue moral perfection and have failed miserably. He's talking about the template, Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And what does he say? He says, Jesus bears in his humanity the very imprint of God. And the Greek text says, 
imprint, the words that he uses, is what the minter uses when he puts the stamp down and hits the coin and impresses the metal. So somebody who would read that would say the very imprint, the image. So this is about not seeking cloud cuckoo land perfection or some form of esoteric spiritual knowledge or some, you know, everybody told you this, but let me tell you the real story, you know. We've spent a lot of time in the West, too, talking about everything started out fine, and then not too long after that, we all went off the rails, right? And in one sense, the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews is saying, it's all right there in front of you. All you need to do is see it. And if you understand, Jesus is the template. What we mean when we say that is, what does it mean to be the best human being you can be? What does it mean to, one inch more than you did yesterday, be somewhat more compassionate with those closest to you, somewhat better at and pursuing excellence in your work, making some progress at the advance of your dream for what you'd like to see for you and those closest to you? That's what we're talking about when we speak about pursuing perfection, not some platonic ideal. So, divorce, D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Mark, whenever you read any of the passages about divorce in the New Testament, there are three things that you have to keep in mind. Mark's gospel is the strictest on this matter. There are very few... uh, ways out in Mark's gospel. The prohibition is absolute. So I'm going to give, read three things to you that may appear, oh no, I don't know what it means. It's like here, but we'll just rise above it. <laughs> the first thing you have to know about is, in this case, the eschatological horizon of Mark, which means what was Mark thinking and expecting about the end of the world which is when Jesus was going to come again and everything was going to be, for some, now, us, not then, a Star Trek moment, right? Where we get carried to some other place and all of a sudden there's a big uh, ethnic cleansing that goes on and and a whole new world gets created. Mark was speaking about how Jesus was going to come again and make things new and in some way uh, complete in terms of God's plan for the cosmos because he was living right at the time that the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. So he, for, for him and for those who were part of his Christian community, the world had effectively come to an end. Everybody ran out of the city. The, place, the, the, the temple was destroyed. They didn't know what the next thing was going to be. And so what they thought was, he's going to come again soon. This gospel is being written about 30, about, oh, right when it happened, 70 A.D. And so it must be so that he's going to come. And that means whatever you and I are doing at the present moment, we need to just do it. Don't do anything else. And that we should probably not contemplate uh, divorce or any of these kinds of things. So the prohibition against divorce is the belief, in this case, that Jesus is going to come again and return to us the halcyon days of the Garden of Eden. 
before the fall. Okay? When Adam and Eve were going to come together now, we're together now, and we had some perfect world. The eschatological horizon of Jesus. The second thing you need to know is that we have to always consider the freedom of the church in the New Testament to make qualifications with regard to the absolute prohibition by Jesus. And the first one that we know about predates the writing of the Gospels. The earliest Gospel is Mark. The earliest writings in the New Testament are Paul's letters. So in the 50s, Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, and he's talking now about divorce. And he says, if you're married to an unbeliever, you can divorce them. He says, before he says that, this is from me and not the Lord. So somehow he feels some freedom to be able to say, this is possible to do. Based what? On his own pastoral experience as he founds these churches and now engages in a correspondence with them when he's away from them. And, has been presented, and it has been presented to him that there are certain issues that have arisen. Jesus hasn't come again yet. It's now 50 AD. We're seven, between 18 and 20 years out from the Christ event. And people are going like this. And he says, what am I going to do with the pastoral situation on the ground? So what we're being introduced to in this particular passage from 1 Corinthians is the pastoral experience of the church and the necessity of the pastoral experience of the church to drive some interpretation of these absolute prohibitions. And the final thing to say is that we also need to consider the role of marriage and divorce in our own day in 2012 because the situation on the ground, to say the least, has changed. So how are we going to make those kinds of interpretations with regard to this? And this is the job of the community of faith we call the church. Anybody who's been a pastor for any amount of time knows that, you, that we get confronted with circumstances that, I mean, are, you know, how can you make sense of this, you know, and say, this is what you need to do. Remember, the strictest churches in Western Christianity have always had a, a strict line on the prohibition of divorce. But there has always been divorce. Right? The Roman Catholic Church in the West says there's no divorce, but there is divorce. It's just called another name. Right? Reginald Fuller, in his uh, book, uh, in one of his commentaries, says this about the, the passage from Mark. The point is not that the particular concessions made in the New Testament and these only are valid for all time, but that the New Testament grants to the church the authority to make concessions that are pastorally necessary, while at the same time keeping Jesus' absolute prohibition before men and women. I have as a believe this absolutely personally. 
I see no inconsistency with being easygoing pastorally with people's circumstances and maintaining the absolute prohibition or the belief that marriage is indissoluble. You can say those two things at once. So when we come to these passages, we, do you know who has the highest, what Christian group has the highest divorce rate in the United States? Evangelical Christians. Episcopalians really aren't too far behind, but they're, it's not as many. We're about three percent, three, three, two or three percentage points below evangelical Christians. So at least there's some idea that, uh, you know, this is the case. And to uh, figure out that they're, uh, say, the evangelical Christians are perhaps uh, somewhat hard-line on divorce. At least they say so. Did you know that in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you can get divorced and remarried three times in the church? If, when I say this, this sounds a lot more easy going than it really is because the Orthodox make this all sound like <laughs> so it becomes extremely difficult when you wade through this but here's one of the things they describe in the course of coming to the pastoral determinations necessary to do this they speak of something called the spiritual death of a marriage So I don't know what that means in absolute terms, but you and I need to chew on that and see whether or not that could be just used as an easy excuse or perhaps there's something deeper there that we need to uh, think about. Here's what they do in, the, in, in permitting remarriage in the Orthodox Church. In a liturgy, uh, the, the nuptial liturgy for the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek liturgy mainly, uh, you, you have, the, in, the, in divorced people remarrying, it is highly penitential. There is a lot of saying that you're sorry for your failures in the past and your intent to uh, honor the promises and vows you make in this particular case. And I was interested when I was looking all that up this week because when Prince Charles married Camilla... Oh. <laughs> Rowan William, the Archbishop of Canterbury, made them in the wedding liturgy, which is not in the li wedding liturgy in, our, in any of the versions, say the general confession. So in the public liturgy, they said the general confession, confession, confession the two of them, which was an admission of whatever uh, failures they understood uh, existed in their former marriages. Not a bad liturgical response to uh, a, a real pastoral issue in that case. So I guess um, when we talk about divorce, this is such an uh, emotionally charged thing. There's no use uh, making absolute statements about what it is. Just know that um, you belong to a church that believes that the pastoral experience of the church is an important thing and an important factor and that we don't need to freight people with a lot of guilt about things that occur that um, are like Job, right? Maybe beyond your control and not always of your own making. Give thanks for being made in the image and likeness of God and Christ, the very imprint 
of God, give thanks for the opportunity to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love, work on your marriages and your relationships, and God will be with you when you do. Amen.